and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And we're off on a new adventure. Yep. A large-scale adventure. Yes. A bigger adventure than I had previously thought, but I'm excited about it. Before we get started on our podcast adventure, how was your last week? Uh, my last week actually was pretty good. It was very busy. How was your Easter? My Easter was lovely. How was your Easter? My Easter was good. I didn't do anything. All right. But you had a lot of chocolate. We went out and got Easter baskets for everyone. We made Easter pouches. Easter pouches. Sounds like something a kangaroo has. Mm. A kangaroo rabbit. Kangaroo's like a tall rabbit. There's a kangaroo rat, but there's not a kangaroo rabbit. That's right? true. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what an actual kangaroo pouch is like either. Is it moist? Uh, it's for the baby that finishes getting done. Because when they're born, they're so not it's like done. It's an easy bake oven for kangaroos. All right, then that's completely unappealing. Thank you. Picture the inside of the Cylon Raider. Okay. I think that's what the inside of a pouch is. Guts. <laughs> there we are. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I've never been about. in there. I've never been invited, and I doubt I ever will be. <laughs> no, I think they're kind of finicky about what they put in their pouch. That's right. But, yeah, they go in when they're not done cooking, okay. and then they cook the rest of the way, but then they stay in there for a long time. In the pouch? Yeah. Have you seen, like, there yeah, are, I like, big babies that'll the kangaroo news. jump inside of a kangaroo mom pouch, and I'm just like, you're too big. So there must out. be a lot of room, then. They stretch, like all ladies. Okay. All right. This is so much more than I wanted to talk about. Women okay. are tardises. <laughs> We're bigger on the inside. And by women, I just mean, I guess... Female anything, right. Or, well, because there are transgender men who carry babies. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this was... uh, I'm so behind the times. Yep. So, those who are biologically capable of carrying babies Mm -hmm. are TARDISes. Okay. (laughs) So, what are we going to do this season? We are going to look at the the, uh, limited literary work of Mr. Stephen King and the adaptations made for film and television. Are you being sarcastic yes, when you I say am. limited? Yes, he is a very prolific author, and I don't think we understood at the beginning nope. when we agreed to this yep. the immensity of this task. Nope. This is like <laughs> we thought it was going to be an elephant, and it wound up being a kaiju. So well, it's much we, bigger than we I thought. I don't know. I think it's, yeah, maybe even smaller to larger. But yes, so our seasons so far, uh, uh-huh. if you haven't been with us since the beginning, typically run. Between 20 and 40 episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we'll say 15 and 40 episodes, actually. And this one's going to be more than that. We'll get to how many more than that when we get to the body of work. But let's start with, who is Stephen King? Well, go ahead. I who wanna... is he? I've got a, bi- a biography. I have uh, done so much preparation for I'm this episode. I'm anxious to listen because I don't know much about his history. His history. Okay. So, Stephen King, born September 21st, 1947 in, it will surprise absolutely no one familiar with his work, Portland, Maine. (laughs) And when he was two, his father left his family, and his mother raised he and his brother by herself. They moved uh, to Wisconsin and to Indiana and to Connecticut before, um, when he was... 11, moving back to Durham, Maine, where they stayed until he went to college and beyond. 
her his mother then cared for her parents until they passed, uh, and then she became a caregiver in the local residential facility for the mentally challenged. I feel like he may have visited her at work. I, I can uh, see that influence on his work later yeah. on. He was raised Methodist, uh, but lost his belief in organized religion in high school, as many high schoolers do. Uh, but he does, uh, he's no longer considers himself religious. He does choose to believe in the existence of God, and that does appear in his work. He's a very religious writer. And I think we'll get to something that yeah. happens later that maybe rekindles that uh-huh. in him. He was married uh, in 1971 to Tabitha, a woman of her own name. She is a writer as well and a philanthropist. Her name is Tabitha. We don't have to call her Mrs. King or Stephen King's wife. I remember her as an author, but I don't remember the output of her. Well, certainly no one's going to be as prolific as him. She has not written nearly as many books as he is, and she writes in different styles. Um, She's written some nonfiction stuff, and she's written more niche stuff. Mm. Uh, but certainly popular in her field, or uh, successful, rather, in her own field. Um, And she drives a lot of the King philanthropy, which he's made a lot of money. And a lot of that comes from what we're going to be talking about Mm -hmm. over the next however long. Uh, So uh, she directs those funds to various uh, charities and charitable organizations. Uh, He has or they together have three kids, a daughter who is a minister at the Universalist Unitarian Churches and lives with her wife, who's also a reverend. Mm. I don't know if they're married, but they are partners. Okay. Um, is she also a, a Unitarian? A reverend something. I don't okay. know how that they... That would be funny if they weren't. I mean, I don't know how many places allow, how many different congregations allow homosexual female clergy, clergy. Okay. <laughs> I think it's a pretty narrow field so mm. probably and their his, their two kids are both writers Owen King and Joe Hillstrom King who writes under the not pseudonym but the alternate name Joe Hill uh, it is a pseudonym but mm. it's really not hard to figure out who he is since he's using his own given name and looks exactly like his dad did when he was younger. So you put your face on that jacket, and it's like, oh, this looks like Stephen King from the early 80s. Oh, you just thought it was another Bachman book, right? Yeah, right. He started being published in the 70s and um, started drinking heavily at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Added more drugs in the 80s, including cocaine and Xanax and marijuana. Now, were these recreational drugs or were these These uh, keep-me-working drugs? No, these were recreational drugs. They were not to help focus, but they they didn't detract from his output. Mm, No, they certainly didn't. But he said in On Writing that he barely remembers writing Cujo. That's a pity. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, and it's a surprise it's not the Tommyknockers that he doesn't remember writing because that book feels like a book written by a cokehead. We'll get there. So he, after Cujo was uh, published, his family staged an intervention. He went through rehab and he's been clean since. Mm. Um, In 1999, oh, I remember this day. This was a rough day for me. In 1999, uh, he was hit by a car out on a walk by 
a character from one of his own books, a, a man named Brian Edwin Smith, who was distracted by uh, dogs that were in his car, uh, struck him uh, driving a minivan, and he was thrown 14 feet from the road. And he was aware enough to be able to call paramedics, mm-hmm. which is probably what saved his life. Uh, but his injuries included a collapsed right lung, multiple fractures of his right leg, scalp laceration, and a broken hip. Uh, he was in the hospital for over a month. He, they, His leg was in so many pieces that they considered amputating it, but after several surgeries, they opted not to do that, and mm. um, he has healed. Uh, he was in the middle of writing his book on writing, which is a memoir writing reference combo, uh, and he got back to writing it uh, in July of that year, so only a month after the accident. But he wasn't able to sit for more than 40 minutes because of the pain that he was in. Mm. And his pain, the the things that he could do for pain were limited as an ex-addict or as an right. addict. So that, in combination with another number of other factors, made him... Uh, basically retire in 2002. Uh, he basically came out with a statement that said, I have enough money for my family, my kids, their their kids, and their kids' kids. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't need to keep publishing, so I'm not going to. But he kept writing because that's what he does. His schedule is to read for four hours a day and write at least 2,000 words a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and 2000. yep, he writes two thousand words a day every day, and uh, that's a good practice. Yep, and he think and and he reads at least as much as he writes mm-hmm. uh, more, which is important. And he says that if you're not willing to do that, then you're not really going to get anywhere. Since two thousand and two, he's come back and he said, "I'm still writing. I'm writing at a much slower pace, but I'll still publish." Um, as if, if the things that I'm writing are good, I'll still mm-hmm. publish because uh, there's a quote. He says, I'd be perfectly willing to publish because it, that still feels like the final act of the creative process, publishing it so people can read it and you can get feedback and people can talk about it with each other and with you, the writer. But the force of my invention has slowed down a lot over the years, and that is as it should be, uh, which is to say he's still publishing at least one book a year mm-hmm. and none of them are short. <laughs> So he may have slowed down, but that if that's true, then he has always been writing twice what he's been publishing. Because, like I said, he's got two books out this year. He had two out last year. And they're all above 500 pages. Mm-hmm. They're not short. So that is... Stephen King. He's still publishing. He lives half of his time now in Maine, where many of his works are set. Uh, the other half of the year he's spending in Florida, probably because his I'm fractured sure the bones. Climate will be, um, yeah. Uh, and he's, you know, kinder to he was him. born in 1947, so he's in his 70s now. Uh, uh, slowing down. And yeah, his body took a, re- a real beating, mm. so uh, the, the warmer How old was he when he got uh, hit by the a forty, nope, fifty-two. 52. Yeah, so your body heals. And I remember slower. the Chiron on CNN was like Stephen King struck by van, mm-hmm. and that was it. And I was like, "Is he alive?" <laughs> like I right. was very, very scared. Well, not least of the 
reasons being he had not finished the Dark Tower series yet. <laughs> okay, so now let's talk about our history with Stephen King. Hi, what's your history with Stephen King? Um, I am a Christmas, Easter Stephen King ah, person. Yes. I, uh, I'll tell you what. I, um, when I was uh, about 18 or 19, I graduated from high school. And I'd started working at a Holmes Book Company. I was a voracious reader. I still, I, not as much as I used to be, because I had so much more time. I had to take a bus home and a train. And so I read a great deal there just to kill the time. And I would kidnap uh, the store copies of the New York Times Book Review. And so I developed a secondhand kind of snobbery against Stephen King. Yeah. Based on the really harsh criticism he was receiving. And so um, I was just being introduced or introducing myself to horror writers or horror writing. And so for some reason I felt that uh, it was almost beneath me to go from reading someone like, um, at the time it was H.P. Lovecraft, which I've long since uh, pushed wah, wah. Right, I know, I just thought that was not, and little did I know. Uh, but I mean, H.P. Lovecraft is a step in everyone's education in this field. <laughs> and it's not one that you stay at. If you're lucky, but uh, but yeah, there was a lot of negative criticism aimed at him mm -hmm. because he was a populist writer. Mm -hmm. And as time went on, I watched films based on his work, and some of them seemed sort of derivative of things I watched when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And then I got married to someone who really loved Stephen King. I was constantly going on about him. Well, I wasn't ever going to read any of her Stephen King books. But uh, what she did do is that uh, when my son was going to be born and I had to redo an entire room as a nursery, that means taking all the stuff out and painting it, while I was working, and she used to, I would listen to audiobooks at the time, she shut off my audiobook and just began to read to me, starting with The Mist, then with Salem's Lot, then Pet Cemetery. She read very quickly and I worked very slowly, I guess. Yeah. And then I really began to appreciate what he was doing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't... The accusations always of his writing is that it was aimed at the lowest common denominator. If he described something full of lights, he'll describe it as an airport instead of trying to use more elevated language for it. If he's describing um, a fear that a person... Oh, and here's a, a passage I remember from The Mist that really appealed to me. She's reading it to me, and uh, he's mentioning the first time he sees The Mist roll in uh, this unsuspecting town. And one passage said it looked like something from an, like John Fulton would do for an old movie or Willis O'Brien. And that was such an odd reference. The number of people who would understand who either of those two people were, that they were special effects people from way back when. A Willis O'Brien who did King Kong, John Fulton who parted the Red Sea in the Ten Commandments. It was just an odd reference that hit, you know, a film student like me. And then by the end of the book, he's describing these characters driving away in this truck. And he said anything could be out there, including King Ghidra, the three-headed dragon, which was an effort reference that, as a person who loved Godzilla, really touched me. It's like, oh my God, this person's speaking my language. So I began to understand what he was doing. It wasn't that he was trying to aim for the lowest common denominator. What he was doing was trying to speak to people on a level where they would understand it. And sometimes those references were awfully obtuse and awfully smart. And he wasn't getting credit for that, like the, the Willis O'Brien reference. Right. Um, so as time went on, and she's reading this to me, I discovered there's a lot of, a lot of the horror that I was reading, and I, this was something that Richard Matheson, who's a great horror writer, talked about, 
was H.P. Lovecraft is writing about decrepit towns you'll never visit and places you'll never go. And some of the other older horror stuff was about castles you'll never visit. Stephen King is talking about parking lots and parts of America that are just sort of left behind and forgotten where the people there are fending for themselves. And so it's very easy to be, you know, the forces of evil lurking somewhere back where you're not expecting to find them. And that quality I really began to appreciate and actually began to affect my own writing, going like, no, write about a horror where you are, not about, you know, a decrepit house in England in the 17th century. Right. So, um, Unless you were there. Right. <laughs> if you're a 17th century writer in right. England, then write about that. Right. Um, and so I really began to appreciate a lot of little tricks he was doing. The fact that he used the same character's name four or five times in four or five different books. Um, the physical resemblance of the vampire in Salem's Lot to Christopher Lee, which is very funny when you read the description. It's like, oh, wait a second. I think I know that guy. There's a lot of stuff in there that was really appealing to a person who'd watched a thousand movies. And when I read Dance Macabre, I understood that he did see all the same movies I did. Yes, your vocabulary is very similar. Right, we have a very common language. So yeah, I began to appreciate him more over the time and appreciate really his inventiveness Yes. with a lot of stuff. He might be doing something that a person from the outside might find derivative, but no, he's exploring a theme that Rod Serling started in Twilight Zone and he's going to work with. So there was a lot more going on than I thought he got credit for. Um, it came from the point to where I was sort of snobbish about him until uh, not too long ago. I was working at a bookstore in, in downtown Oakland, and this couple came in, this young couple. And one of them said, uh, they, they were arguing. The boyfriend was arguing about literature with his girlfriend. They were very young, but not real literature in terms of... This literature. really sounds like some grad student nonsense. <laughs> yes, it was. I mean, it's, like, it's not real literature. Maybe even undergrad nonsense. But um, one of them, uh, the boyfriend, I think, was talking about Stephen King and the girlfriend was having none of it. It's like, this is not a real author. So they both walk into the store and I'm the only one at the counter with the night shift. And I said, what do you think of Stephen King? And I sort of thought over for a second and I said, I think Stephen King is... Charles Dickens now. Charles Dickens was a populist author who was hated by mm-hmm. literary people at the time. People forget that. It's like you're looking at Bleak House or David Copperfield. It's brilliant. Mm-hmm. But at the time, people did not think much of him, and they would poke fun at his tropes. You know, dying, dying street urchins. There was always a kid in danger of dying mm-hmm. or dying. Sometimes they actually died. There was, uh, you know, a lot of pol- political statements he was making about the underprivileged and the poor and championing their cause. So he was really swimming upstream in terms of literature at the time. They wanted stories about wealthy people or gentry who basically... Manners. They wanted manners books. Sat around and had private issues and are they going to get married or are they not going to get married? And he was writing about poor, starving, dying people and their their conflicts with other people who were sort of keeping them down. And he said just the same way, Stephen King is a populist author who's going to be serious literature in 20 years. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think he'll see it in his lifetime, but fortunately, like Dickens, he was able to make a living off of right. it. Right. A healthy yes. living. He's made, he's made a very healthy living. So I think that, that, um, that time will vindicate more of what he did. Mm. And, he's doing. Well, yes, because he, Dickens... I, was, I say that because mm. he's got books out this year. I right. mean, it's an ongoing... Dickens was also making references to popular culture all the time. Right. To music halls, to, you know, to theatrical stories... 
he makes reference to the Three Musketeers. He begins Bleak House by mentioning dinosaurs, which were just becoming a thing. Oh, right. They Come discovered like, the first and? dinosaur oh, fossils. Right. <laughs> History. And so this was a popular image. So he starts Bleak House by saying, you know, the poor houses were covered with mud in the flats. It was muddy. And he kept imagining a dinosaur creeping up out of the mud and wandering down the street. Um, so, yeah, he was not afraid of making popular references that people would understand. Mm. It's the same thing. But, um, but yeah, so I've actually had a good history. I've watched a lot of films based on his stuff, some of which I really like. And that's the interesting thing about Stephen King. Some of the work, you have work by actual masters. Yes. Right? You have David Cronenberg. Let, let's, right. let's wait to but, get into that stuff. Please. Yeah, so, but that's the reason why I'm bringing it up now is right. that that's part of my reference for Stephen King. Right. Is the, the films, really. Okay. So what is your background with Stephen King, or where did you start? I think you started a lot earlier than I did. I started a lot earlier with, than, than you did, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was a Stephen King reader. Uh, I did a tally earlier today. Of the 69 no- uh, fiction 69. books, wow. yes. Novels and collections. Uh, that includes a book that's not out yet. So, you know. Uh-huh. I've read all but 12, including wow. one that's not out. So I have read most of his work. Now, the caveat there being, I read most of them between the ages of 9 and 16, which is over half my life ago. I don't know that that was a good idea. Yeah, well, okay. here we are. This is what formed me. There's a lot of sexual content. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just the violence, but also the other right. stuff. No, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of sexual content. My mother um, had read all of his books, so um, she told me that I could read anything that I wanted, except Gerald's Game. That was where she I, drew the that's line. That's the only book she put a, a caveat on. Um, she said I couldn't read that until I was 14. I did as she told. There was plenty of books to read, and I uh-huh. figured she's really, she she didn't give me a lot of structure growing up, uh-huh. so I figured, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and listen to that. Like, there's a reason for it. And when I read it when I was 14, I wished that I had waited. It was still very upsetting <laughs> Did you have any sense when you were reading it at the time that this was not something you should be reading? Like, you you, you felt weird about it or yes. it was too mature for you? I Yes. Mm. I, for, I, a lot of the molestation stuff was uh, maybe fresh to me. Yeah. It just... It wasn't a great situation. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and then, ooh, that gloving scene is upsetting even now. So uh, I wish I had been older when I read that. But, I mean, she was right to say. Right, this is the one to know, wait on. <laughs> wait a while. I, I would have waited on a lot more of them, but <laughs> okay. So I read, well, I read a lot of the um, more kid-centric ones when I was younger, that doesn't mean that they're not... So like the girl who loved Tom Gordon? No, that wasn't out yet. That didn't come oh, out until, okay. I think, 94. Um, no, I mean like It and okay. Cujo and Pet Cemetery. <laughs> yeah, so still not, you know, not ideal. And a lot of the... So, but the other... The, the side effect of that is um, I don't remember most of the details of most of the books. Okay. Um, the Dark Tower series, I did not read until I was uh, working at Cody's, actually. I was in my 20s uh-huh. uh, because my mother read them 
When the fourth book came out, I remember she was very excited because that was supposed to be the last one. And she read it and she was pissed because it was not. And she, um, and I like to know that there's an end to a thing that I start. Um, so, like, I hate reading the first of a trilogy if the other two books haven't been written yet. Yeah. I don't want to wait. I'm going to forget. Or I'm going to want to read it right now. Like I like to binge my reading in that way. Mm-hmm. So until I knew the seventh book was set for publication, I did not start the Dark Tower series. Well, you still do this with television shows, I noticed. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes I do. Um, not always. Sometimes I'll watch a thing as it comes out. But mm-hmm. uh, a lot of shows, I think, for me, benefit um, from watching binge watching uh-huh. something like Supernatural for instance I can binge oh, watch Jesus. because it is ridiculous and right. if you give me a week between episodes to think about it I am going to hop off of this crazy train but if I'm just watching them back to back I'm just like this is not and great I, <laughs> so I, right. I when I started Supernatural I binged like the first 10 seasons and then I tried to watch it week to week and I was like I can't with this show. It's insane. So it just doesn't work. I also like binge the magicians. I think for a similar reason. Uh-huh. Uh I save them all until the end of the season and then I watch them all at once. Well the magicians can be a really downbeat show though so it I can I be. wonder how much depression you can take and Well and if it's getting to be too much I take a break. It's uh-huh. not like I'm like this Saturday and Sunday 14 episodes of television this come hell or high from the woman who just did with, with Game of Thrones. But I'd seen it before so it wasn't right. I was that was just brushing up. Mm-hmm. Um so, of the 12 that I haven't read, several of them are big names and are things that we are going to be watching the adaption to, adaptations of. Um, I haven't read Salem's Lot. I haven't read Christine. So, those are both coming up fairly shortly. Uh, I feel like I started Christine and I don't know if I ever finished it, but this again was between the ages of 9 and 16. So, who knows? Um, so I'm not going to come to it with... I don't come to ad, these... Ad, I, okay, let me start again. I won't come to these adaptations with them. This is different than the thing. And then this is different than the... So here's what I feel about Stephen King's work. Right. I, I love it, first of all. I like the way that he writes characters. Uh-huh. Yes, some of them are problematic, especially the women. Uh, when you say they're problem, problematic, what do you mean? We'll get into it. Okay. But like... Sometimes he writes characters that are not good. Like, he has a very particular woman Mm -hmm. that he writes a lot that isn't particularly... She's, like, Mm two-dimensional. She's not quite three-dimensional in a lot of ways. Um, I think he's gotten better. I think it helps when he's not writing something like The Stand with a thousand characters. Right. Which, of course, has to be written like an allegory because you can't flesh out that many characters. The book would be... It's already a thousand pages. <laughs> like it would, it would be too long. Um, I find that he has trouble ending things. I think he knows this as well. Um, he doesn't like to say goodbye to those characters that he's built and loved so much. So his endings tend to 
peter out, which is why I was worried about the Dark Tower series ending. But he did good, y'all. It's very good. <laughs> the end of the Dark Tower series is one of my favorite things ever. Um, I like that he's got this universe and there are... I I imagine that the inside of his brain looks like one of those conspiracy walls with red string mm-hmm. attaching everything. That's legitimately what his universe looks I like. I think that, to me, it from the image that he gives you in Dreamcatcher mm-hmm. that was realized in the film, which was probably mm-hmm. the only really mm-hmm. valuable image in the entire movie, uh, but uh, certainly was part of the book, is interesting because I kind of think of it that way, that there's just a lot of stuff. And you think about guys like him or Stan Lee um, who have all this stuff going on at the same yeah. time, or Edgar Rice Burroughs, for that matter, for older readers, that are everything is interconnected. And yeah. They all sort of fit into each other's space. Yeah, not everything in his universe, like not every book fits mm-hmm. into the wider universe specifically, but a lot of them do. Mm-hmm. Um, the the hub of that wheel is the Dark Tower series. Uh-huh. Um, he's a character in it. Really? Yes. He's a character in it. So, and many books reference other characters to other books that seemingly don't have anything to do with the supernatural worlds of one Mm -hmm. that'll be happening in another. Also, his books have sort of, they're almost like shades of supernatural. Like, some are very faint. Uh-huh. And there's almost nothing that is that you would consider supernatural. There might be like a tinge of psychic something or uh-huh. something like that, but nothing over all the way to monsters and aliens and mm. outright fantasy, outright straight fantasy, werewolves, mm. vampires. All of these things happen in his work, um, and it it does feel like you know shades of. Um, almost like tinting of lenses uh-huh. to how we view the world and how dark that tint is to, is to how fucked up we can see the world actually is. And then we back it back down to like, oh, sometimes I have insomnia all the way to like, um, you know, straight up vampire. It's just straight up. So what would you, in your opinion, like the most fantastic would be the Dark Tower? I mean... The Dark Tower probably has the most fantastical elements uh-huh. in number. Um, I'm I'm just looking through. Then there's things like the Tommyknockers and um, Dreamcatcher, which deal with alien life mm-hmm. here, right? There's stuff like Salem Slot and Cycle of the Werewolf, which I assume, as a thing I have not read, deals with werewolves. I don't know. <laughs> I've only seen the film that deals with werewolves. Okay. Um, and then there's the Green Mile and the Shining, so these psychic abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, thinner things like... Gypsy curses. Not there great, there yeah. should be like a gypsy defamation league, honestly. <laughs> they get blamed for just about everything. Uh, the stand is a, a religious allegory, right. but there are miracles and, you know, 
there's a literal hand of God if you believe that miniseries. Um, and then in Cujo, there's a rabid dog. There's nothing, right. you know. I always thought Cujo was very religious, but in a completely different way. Yeah, there's no, a, that's fair. a very strong moral judgment being mm-hmm. way, levied against these people. But things like, you know, Dolores Claiborne is about a woman who, spoiler alert, everyone, um, kills her husband, her mm-hmm. abusive husband. In a scene during the eclipse, she looks under the bed and sees a character from another book. It's the only piece of supernatural anything in the book. Mm-hmm. It's one scene, but it's how it ties into everything else. Right. And the whole rest of the book is not... Is a drama or it's a drama. crime drama. Right. right. Same thing with something like Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. There's no supernatural in that. It's just a book about guys in prison mm-hmm. and a prison break. Um, so I like that. I, I kind of like every time a book comes out, I'm like, so how weird is this going to be? Mm. <laughs> like how, um, I wonder if it works that way with his Westerns as well. Um, they're pretty supernatural, actually. Really? There's only the two, and one of them was written as a Bachman book. Oh, that's the other thing I should say is he's published under a number of pseudonyms, uh-huh. but the most well-known is Richard Bachman. The, he, he wrote... F- what ended up being five books. Four were released as the Bachman books. One of them is now out of print. He took it out of print uh, after the Columbine massacre because it is a detail of how you could do a school shooting. And while he knows that he was not, yeah, at he fault, worked as a school t- as a teacher. He was a teacher. Yeah, yes, okay. um, he knows he wasn't at fault, but he didn't feel like it needed to be out into the in the world. Uh, no, so he pulled it. That's actually to it's me also a responsible a choice. Very good story. Like uh, I'm glad that I have read it, and you can still get it like in used well, bookstores. Yeah, right. Um, but no, it was at a premium. I remember that um, as a as a bookseller. Oh, okay. Um, the, that book was at a premium, and the other question, of course, was uh, I, one of the books has a completely random person on the dust jacket to throw off suspicion as to Oh, really? Interesting. And that book also is at a premium. Of, like, well, if you can find the one with the weird dust jacket with the random with guy. With the random guy, like I, an actual author. actually photo. added to the value of the book. Interesting. And and by the time I was reading him, of mm-hmm. course, everybody knew that he was Richard Bachman. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wonder, I don't know, I can't remember why he started writing as Richard Bachman. I wonder if it was a similar thing to Nora. He was saturating the market under his own name. Yeah. Nora, what's her name? Nora. She writes as J.D. Robb as well. And I think it was because you mm-hmm. cannot publish three books a year. You need to do something else. Right. Um. So, but now we're saturating all over again. So, let's talk about some favorites. All right. So, what are your favorites? So, my from the vast. <laughs> now, we should divide this into categories. Yes, right? let's divide this. Favorite into book, favorite movie, and favorite adaptation. Favorite book, favorite adaptation, and then sort of favorite overall thing. Okay, let's do that. So, my favorite book. Mm-hmm. This is a hard. This is hard because. I actually really love like four of them, uh, but the Talisman is probably my mm. favorite. Uh, it's never been adapted. I want to write the adaptation so bad. It's been purchased. It's been optioned forever, yeah. and I've been seeing every three years or so mm-hmm. a new writer attached to it, and I'm like, I want to do it. <laughs> um, 
I really love that story. I think it should be a miniseries. It's, mm. um, it's a road trip. It's a journey. And I think it needs about eight hours. <laughs> so um, my favorite adaptation just for... Uh, just it's it's I don't know it might be the Blue Oyster Cult song uh, is the Stand the Stand miniseries mm. I know it's not the best adaptation <laughs> we've just seen some very good ones in the uh-huh. last year um, like four really good ones in the last yeah. year I love that miniseries it's ridiculous but Miguel Ferrer is so great it's where I learned who Jerry Sinise was Laura Sangiacomo just losing her wonderful. damn mind is, is so really, good. Really good she has one of the best lines in it we are dead and this her, is hell her and line she's, reading is wonderful it's, it's, she's, so I really I have some significant issues with some casting we'll get to it when we when we get to the stand but Mm -hmm. i have seen those eight hours of television probably eight times it's a lot that's a lot of time i've also read the book three times that book is no which is a commitment now have you read the uh, i have not read the unabridged revision that was released in the 90s and my favorite piece of his writing is on writing. Mm. Uh, as a person who wants to write, fancies themselves a writer. You are a writer. Well, I don't write enough, so I would argue. There's a part I want to read. That's what I was looking sure, for. Sure, okay. Yeah. Was, was my copy of On Writing, and I don't know where it is. Um, but I found the quote. And it works better in reading. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But when I read this, I was like, my mind is blown. <laughs> okay. So this comes from On Writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's mildly abridged, but this is what we ha- I have in front of me. So, look, here's a table covered with red cloth. On it is a cage the size of a small fish aquarium. In the cage is a white rabbit with a pink nose and pink-rimmed mm-hmm. eyes. On its back, clearly marked in blue ink, is the numeral eight. The most interesting thing here isn't even the carrot-munching rabbit in the cage, but the number on its back. Not a 6, not a 4, not a 19.5. It's an 8. This is what we're looking at, and we all see it. I didn't tell you. You didn't ask me. I never opened my mouth, and you never opened yours. We're not even in the same year together, let alone the same room, except we are together. We are close. We're having a meeting of the minds. We've engaged in an act of telepathy. No mythy mountain shit. Real telepathy. And I'm like, that is what writing is, right? I put my ideas on paper here. And wherever you are taking them in, Uh I have sent my thoughts to you. That's pretty fucking rad. (laughs) So, uh, So I love that book. It's very good. It's a half memoir. Mm Mm-hmm half book about the craft of writing from a man who has written more than most published authors uh probably not more than most unpublished authors weirdly (laughs) but he's written a lot i also really like his um his gauge of talent Mm. he says if you have sold a book or a piece of writing received the check for it cashed the check and it didn't bounce 
and then you paid your electricity with it, I consider you talented. Like if someone has paid for your work, uh-huh. you're talented. I'm, okay, there we go. I can fit that one. <laughs> Somebody has paid for my work. So, I mean, it's very... Right. Nobody cashes a check. Like... <laughs> Well, we live in the that doesn't now. quite happen anymore, no. But yes, I have somebody who's paid for my writing. Thank you, Stephen King. I feel better about myself now. <laughs> so could you say that you have a favorite book? Um, overall, I can say... Or story, maybe. The favorite book would be Pet Cemetery. Okay. Now, this was a really poor choice to read this while I am painting my soon-to-be uh, Born child. Yes. Right. Unborn Child's Nursery. Yeah. Because that was... Parenthood colors that book significantly, I would think. And it becomes really hard to deal with at a point where there's a a really beautiful passage where he's describing flying a kite with his son. Mm Mm-hmm. And that passage came back to me when I used to go for the the kite flying Oh, right, the kite festival. With my son. And it's just like... um, you know, that, that happened later on. I would remember that passage and remember how it sets you up for a really horrible, tragic uh, scene later on, another really horrible, uh, but I won't go into yes. what it is now until we have to discuss it. But, um, but yeah, that just stayed with me. And I understood that it was hard for him to write. Yes. That he took a break from writing it because it was getting to be too much as a parent writing this book. Yeah. But it was that... That thing was like, what's the? How far would you go? Yeah, to protect your child mm-hmm. or to take care of your child. That's that's a, that's a big one. Uh, other than that, I think I would really, I really appreciated the mist. Yeah, and and well, no, we would all have to talk about the derivation of the ending of the end of, right, the, right, of the, well, movie. the film. I think is outstanding, um, but I think I mentioned that before at some point on our podcast that I used to, because I live across the street now from the place where I went to elementary school. Right. And I used to have these sort of daytime fantasies when I was a kid about barricading ourselves in the school because there were monsters around. Oh, okay, around. yeah. And I, 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 I talked about that before. I could even describe to you what the monsters look like. Mm-hmm. But that was like... That's a, what this book is. That's what yeah. this story is. It Like he tapped into my head somehow. Yeah. Like, uh, and maybe, again, that's what made me think that on some level, we spoke the same language. It's yeah. Like, yeah, he had the same idea. You barricade yourself and there's monsters coming at you. It's funny because I think to me, mm-hmm. like I will say the scariest thing that I can recall, and it still creeps me the fuck out. And sometimes mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, I get wigged out. I haven't go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. There is a short story in one of the books uh-huh. where a man, I believe, kills his wife. And there's a telltale heart situation, Uh but what it actually, but but what the telltale heart is, is a finger coming out of the drain. Uh Oh, that's a good one. But it like keeps coming Uh joint after joint after joint. And this huge long finger is coming out of this drain Uh and he like is losing his mind and he starts hacking at it with a chainsaw Uh and then is found by the police in this room just filled with blood and gore. Right. Um, and that's what gives him away, even though he has buried his wife, you know, yeah. wherever else, or got rid of her. With, however, he disposed of her body. But there's this finger, and the finger coming out of the drain is like he, woof. He visits that image. I think there's a similar image in it. Yes, I'm to I believe. Well, there's a there's a blood covered bathroom. Right. Yeah. 
And there's also the cloud and coming out of the drain uh-huh. later on, I think. At least that was the image in the film. I haven't read the, the book. The what? I'm sorry. The cloud itself. Oh, yes, in the drain, the drain. yeah. Um, yeah, I think, though, in terms of my favorite adaptation, though, Or favorite thing that you've seen? I would have to say, in terms of the films, it would be The Shining. I know that wasn't a faithful... You mean the Kubrick Kubrick film. Shining, okay. Because it is absolutely a masterpiece. He doesn't follow the book exactly. It doesn't. doesn't. It is... This is a brilliant piece of filmmaking. I agree with you now. I (laughs) didn't used to. I didn't see it for a long time. I wouldn't, out of solidarity with my man, Stephen King, who did not like this movie, but who has come around... Um, he's been able to separate himself from the movie. Well, and when we talk about uh, it, I'll discuss what his issues were. He was on the set for that, mm-hmm. and that's something we can discuss, because I'll, I'll try to see if I can dig up the interview I had yeah. in, uh, in Fangoria of all the A things. big part of it was just thematically uh, Kubrick went at it, and, and the film is cold. Uh-huh. The film is... Well, that was his statement. Yeah, and right. then he... But the book is hot. Right. It's fire that is driving it as opposed to he ice. He made a, a really interesting distinction. Which I actually think makes so much sense for Stanley Kubrick to do, though, because fire in 1970s film uh, looked terrible. Well, you don't yeah. make that your big bet. Like, don't do that. The, um, well, even in the, the miniseries adaptation, the whole exploding hotel mm-hmm. did not look convincing mm-hmm. at all. So Fire didn't start looking good until... Uh, mid 2018 <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um with uh with in dance macabre i think it is he makes a distinction between wet horror and dry horror yes and i remember that there's only two real distinctions about horror writing which is what i do which is not quite horror it's it's very weird is um the first one was boris karloff who said there's horror and there's terror Okay. And horror is physical revulsion, what? and terror is spiritual anxiety. Okay. And so King added one other. He said there's wet and there's dry. He says, appropriately enough, Dracula is wet. Night of the Living Dead is wet. These things about decay yeah. and death and decomposite. And there's dry, which would be M.R. James, who does ghost So stories. like ghosts. Right. Okay. Or something that isn't, or something like Val Luton's films, which it's maybe in your head, maybe it's not in your head, maybe it's psychological. Okay. But he made a very careful distinction there, too, that was worth remembering. Interesting. And I think that was the difference between the adaptations of, the, of uh, the Shining, where the book isn't afraid to indulge in the composition of the film. It's mm-hmm. kind of shy. There are scenes, but it shies away from that right. in favor of something else. Um, okay. So let's talk about some overall themes in his work. Okay. Um, I found a thing, and I think that they're pretty good. So... Um, so a big one is sort of a good versus evil, but it's uh-huh. not good and evil, typically. Um, he calls, uh, like, he uses different terms, but it'll be like the purpose and the random. Mm-hmm. And the purpose is white, good, yeah. God, and the random is chaos that's pulling against right. that. Um, and it's this maintenance of balance. And a lot of that stuff comes through, like, literally mm-hmm. in the dark tower series mm-hmm. um and then 
these other things are sort of pieces from that. Um, but big themes are things like ordinary people in groups mm-hmm. can do extraordinary things. Or terrible things, right. Or terrible things. Right. But I mean, the kids in it right. bond together and are able to do the things that they can do. The people who stand bond together and are able to and overcome the these forces. the people in the mist who bond together do really... Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, he has a lot of stuff about victimization. So, mm. like, the greatest evil that people can do is to victimize the weak. Like, specifically, the strong victimizing the weak is, like, mm. the worst. That's the epitome of evil. Mm. Um, the innocents and uncorrupted are closest to the purpose, so they often have powers, which is why kids often, you know, the shining right. and, and things like that. Um Creation is powerful in terms of working for the good side, uh-huh. which is why there are also a lot of writers in his work. Now, a lot of that also goes to, well, we write what we know. So, uh-huh. so a lot of his main characters are middle-aged writers. Weird. <laughs> it's, it's odd. Um, and then um, one of the most important things a person can do is to stand up for the ultimate good mm-hmm. against whatever. Right is in front of them. And then sort of an overarching thing is that everything is cyclical. Events are connected and come around again and again. Okay. Um, so those are sort of the big themes in his work, and we can talk about them as we go mm-hmm. forward. And then, as I said, a lot of his stuff is um, linked to other stuff. So when we talk about each thing, we can talk about how it's interconnected. How it's interconnected. Right. Yeah. So originally, like I said, I thought it would be like, what, 40 things? Uh, uh, so it would be a long season, but it would be, you know, within the, the, the seasons that we've done previously. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I went to trusty Wikipedia to get a list of Stephen King adaptations... I came up with a cool 80. (laughs) And it's actually fewer than 80 because uh, I added in, it's it's probably actually about 70. Mm -hmm. I added extra days for certain things. There are several days for the stand. There are several days for uh, 11-22-63. There are several days for Mr. Mercedes, and I would add, I would guess that some of these other things would get more than one day, depending on how we um, watch them and, and deal with them. So, I put them all in a calendar, and it came back that we would be doing this clear through 2020. So, yes. the, whether we go and don't <sighs> stop... Right. Um... We'll see how we go. You know, we'll do tw- you know a bunch and then see how we feel. Now, I will say a lot of these are very different. The ones from the 80s are, they all feel similar to me, but when I'm looking at them, I'm like, oh, no, those are going to be very different from one another, which means I think that we won't get sort of overwhelmed right. or mucked down. Um so we, we're looking at doing them in order of release date. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that we're going to do, is, uh, and release date of the media that we're watching, not right. release date of the not book. Not of the book, yeah. 
Um, so the first thing that we will do next week is 1976's Carrie, directed by Brian De Palma. Uh-huh. So the original Carrie. Will there be more Carries later? Yes, there will be. Are we going to do all the Carries at the same time? No. Or, okay. Let's right. do them one at a time, because right. I feel like... Are we going to watch the musical? I don't think we're going to watch the musical, but we, you know, we can. There are three Carries on, on this list. Uh-huh. So... We might get to that second carry and go, let's just do both of them. Right. Um, I didn't. I was we're going to keep it loose. We're not, uh, gonna, we're not tied to anything. I was but unaware that there were three. I knew uh, um, Sissy Spacek. The one with Sissy Spacek Angela in it. Lettuce. There's the one with, um, oh, I've forgotten her name. Uh-huh. Hit, uh, Hit Girl. Oh, Chloe Grace Moretz. Chloe Grace Moretz is in one. Uh-huh. And then there's the one that was made for television that as was Angela a Bettis. pilot. Yeah. Okay, that's Angela yeah. Bettis. That's the one that you were talking about. So those those are the three. Okay. Julianne Moore, I believe, is the mother in uh, the uh, one with... Right. Which is weird, casting these dishy red-headed actresses as, as the repressed mom. <laughs> it's like that's a consistent... Thing. And I believe with Angela Bettis, it was Patricia Clarkson, too. Oh, wow. I can't She's remember. very good. I like her. Yeah, mind. but it was just like another one going, I, I don't think this is what he was aiming at, these really attractive women. So, so let's talk about some of the stuff that we'll talk about in the adaptation. Uh-huh. I don't think we'll go beat by beat um, in terms of our recaps okay, necessarily. Uh, a lot of these are very popular familiar, things, they're, familiar they're common, things. Yeah. So we can do broad stro- st- strokes of the um, of the plot mm-hmm. and we can talk about specific scenes you know right. that we want to talk about uh, I do want to talk about types of ca- the casting and maybe comparing them to the um, the things in the books uh-huh. um, now I'm not rereading each of these books as we go ain't nobody no, got time that would for be that a huge commitment of time uh, first of all his books are I'm not kidding they are not short no. um, and I have a problem I am having uh, concentration issues where my reading is not great these days. So I cannot listen to the entire audiobook in between episodes. But I do have most of these books, so I can go to the text and find the descriptions. You know, we right. can find the basic stuff. And we'll go over, you know, how they're received, how maybe how the books are received and how the movies are received. Um, the As we talked about previously, and, and maybe we want to talk about that now, the caliber of both filmmaker and star vary drastically yes. in these films. Um, and so maybe budget is another thing that we can talk okay, about. So they vary drastically. Um, it's also a matter of there are things that his name were attached to that have nothing to do with him. Yes. So there right. will be a week uh-huh. um, away down the road where we'll actually probably talk about three different things. Mm-hmm. The fr- Two things came out in 1992, and that was The Lawnmower Man, uh-huh. which has absolutely nothing to do with the Stephen King story, The Lawnmower Man, other than New Line wanted to put that a name on there. Right. And so they did. To a completely unrelated to story. To a completely unrelated yeah. story. Stephen King and his publishers have sued New Line, one, and New Line raises two middle fingers and doesn't do anything about changing them, even though they've been legally ordered to do so. 
Um, the second thing is Sleepwalkers, which you told me was bad. It was bad. And I believe it was also written for... I don't, it was written for the movies. Written for the movies. So we're not going to talk about it, since it's not technically mm-hmm. an adaptation. So those both came out in 1992, and then we'll talk about the dark half. Right. So that'll be that episode. We'll pack a bunch of stuff in there. Because no. there's going to be a real difference in ambition between something like uh, Dolores Claiborne and um, Silver Bullet. Yes. The one is a pulp B movie. That's its only ambition is to be that. Right. And it succeeds at being that. And the other one is a very serious kind of drama. Yeah. So we can we can take each yeah. as what they are intended to be. Right. And that's that's um that's Roger Ebert's maxim for yeah. You know, if you like this kind of movie, you're really going to enjoy this movie about yeah. a giant flying turtle from outer space. So let me give you a rundown of the first few. Okay. So it's Carrie. Mm-hmm. Then it's Salem's Lot. Which is a miniseries from 1979. Which I is, have not, I really love. I have not seen it. Uh-huh. I have not read the book. So okay. I am coming into Salem's Lot cold. Do I know that it's about a vampire? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then The Shining. Then Creepshow, Cujo, The Dead Zone, Christine, Children of the Corn, Firestarter, Cat's Eye, Silver Bullet, Maximum Overdrive, Stand By Me, Creep Show 2, because <laughs> you got to make a sequel. <laughs> the Running Man, Pet Cemetery. So that rounds out the 80s. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different stuff in there. Yeah, there's a lot of different <laughs> stuff. So I think it should be interesting week to week to look at everything overall and how it ties together, how it all comes from the mind of this one person, and how vastly different these things are going to be. Yeah, and and again, it's just like keeping in mind they were not always intended to give the same effect. Some of them are just there to um, to entertain you and some of them are there to say something. Mm-hmm. And then some of it seems to be elevated even beyond his expectations, like, wow, that was better than I thought it was going to turn out to be. Yeah. And that there's, that's funny when that happens, like, oh, okay, well. Well, for instance, um, when we talk about Cujo, mm-hmm. um Stephen King writer dies for the idea that Dee Wallace should have been nominated for Academy Award for that performance. And she should have been. Um, So we'll talk about it in a few weeks. (laughs) So that's what we're doing coming up. We're going to talk about some movies and miniseries. This is based on the work of Stephen King, one of today's most popular and prolific artists. I'm going to call him an artist. Yeah, he's an artist. I mean, he won... I believe the O. Henry for short fiction. Uh-huh. And they decided that he had to share it with somebody. Right. It's like when they won't let a black person be valedictorian. It's some bullshit. <laughs> uh, I know it sounds really wrong to use this term. There's a lot of ghettoizing in his writing, mm-hmm. which is we're going to relegate it to here and you can stay there and you can, you know, be successful, and we're going to make a great deal of money off of publishing your book, but we don't want to give you any recognition about it because we want you, instead, we want people to take, we're, think we're serious. That's the thing, And though. we're going to publish a four-volume biography of Alexander Hamilton instead. Which is fine. Right. You can publish that book right. because Stephen King sold a exactly. million of his last. And so that's kind or of the issue Or else your Doors Publishing Company, uh-huh. hey, Scribner, you're out of business right. without Stephen King. Yeah. Stephen King and Dean Koontz, um, Nora Roberts, these are the people 
who keep books on shelves. Right. It's the only reason anybody else gets published. Or I love matter. Donna Tartt. Right. She writes a book a decade. Yeah. She's not she's not keeping any businesses open. And I don't think the film adaptations don't necessarily hurt either. Uh, no, and we're in, in a golden age because at the end right. of this list are Dr. Sleep, uh-huh. that comes out this year. And In the Tall Grass, that comes out this year. So, and In the Tall Grass is based on a thing that I don't know. In the Tall Grass, that's kind of menacing sounding, just the title. Like, we'll have an episode about the the show The Mist, but uh, we're not rewatching it. No, it's not good. That was <laughs> just such, it was painful. Yeah, not great. Despite the fact that it had a really good cast. But Netflix has made some good adaptations. Right. Including of the aforementioned Gerald's Game. So, you know. So, that's what we're doing. Do you Uh, have anything else you want to talk about? No. Do you want to recommend anything? I don't. Go read a book by Stephen King. I don't have anything (laughs) to recommend, actually. I don't. If you just want a mystery and you don't mind a serial killer... The Mr. Mercedes books are real good. That trilo- the Bill Hodges trilogy right. is not mired in lore. Mm-hmm. And it's fairly recent and it's very good. The other thing that I would say, um, they haven't made it into a book or into a movie, so we won't be able to talk about it. So this is another one of my favorite things. The book Insomnia is one of my favorites. Uh-huh. I've read it like five or six times. I don't know. I like his books about old dudes. Just old widows. Okay. Give me a widow trying to figure out how to fill his day. And then some creepy shit happens. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> give me give me it. Maybe I just, I don't know. I feel very, I have a lot of kinship with a 70-year-old man who has trouble moving. Like, his joints hurt. I'm like, right. yeah, dude. Me too. Same. So, yeah. Read Insomnia. Ha. I'm just going to be in fucking just giving Stephen King recommendations. And we're watching Carrie next week. It's a great movie. Right. Bram De Palma is a great director. He's a pervasoid. He's, yeah, he's... He's problematic he's as hell. Problematic. And we will discuss it. Um, but yeah, watch some, watch some kids taunt a, taunt a girl in the shower because she doesn't know what her period is. Well, God, would you put it that way? No, I don't. Plug it up. Plug it okay, up. Okay, well, thank you. I think we've gone as far as we can go. I'm cutting all of this out. All right. Um, yes, yeah, so next week is Carrie. We're very excited. If you're excited, let us know. Um, we'll let you know how to watch these things. I think we're going to have to buy a lot of them through Amazon. Yeah, I think so. We're going to have Jeff a collection. Jeff Bezos is going to get a lot of my two ninety nine at a times. Um, but so far, they're available. They're just not available for free. But the things we do for our art. <laughs> okay. I think that's everything. We good? You good? Yeah, we're good. All right. So if you have questions, comments, concerns, if you have a favorite Stephen King thing that you can't wait till we get to, if you think we overlooked something, uh, let us know either on our Facebook page at the mm-hmm. Latecomers Podcast. Uh, you could tweet at us uh, at latecomerspod or you could email us latecomerspod at gmail.com. Um, we've released our first episode of our new show, 
It's called Without Works. It's not on iTunes yet, but it is on Google Play and Spotify. So you can look for Without Works. You can also look for us. I've linked it in the Latecomers Facebook page. So okay. if you're there, you've seen it. You've seen it. Um, and we have, that can be found at Without Works podcast on Facebook as well. So come like that page. We're going to probably be using it more than we use this one. Although I might Stephen King it up in yes. our Latecomers thing think, for yeah, the next will, year and a half, right, everyone. It will be much easier buckle to do in through 2020. <laughs> um, yeah, we've become a Stephen King podcast. For the time being, yeah. This was, this was my plan all <laughs> um, and I think that's everything we love you very much we thank you for listening I remind you to take your medicine and remember better late than, than never, never.